0: Happy dogs are the ones that are good at their job. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Rossifari. Hello, the spooky spectacular has ended, the sound effects and bad accent have been put away for now, and we are back to a normal episode of the Safari podcast. Well, as normal as I ever get, anyway. I really hope y'all enjoyed the spooky spectacular, because I had a bunch of fun making it. Make sure you head over to at Rossifari on both Facebook and Instagram to check out pics from those episodes, as well as this one and all the episodes, really, because you'll love the stuff I posted about Banshee, Rosie, Purple Bat, and the rest of those amazing animals. And if you're just starting the podcast with this episode, make sure you go back and listen to all three, because they really were a blast. Also, while checking out those episodes, make sure you hit subscribe, and if you could take a second to leave a five-star rating, and maybe even 20 seconds to leave a review, it would really mean a lot to me. It helps people find the podcast, which will help me continue to make it. Speaking of helping me make the podcast, please consider going to patreon.com slash to look into becoming a monthly patron of the pod. Putting out podcasts like this is not cheap. There are hosting fees, travel fees, and even some gear upgrades that I want to get to make it sound even better and more professional. All of that costs money, and I would love to keep the podcast ad-free, but can only do so if I get some more patrons. You can become a patron for as little as $3 per month, and it would really help me out. There are also some great perks of being a patron, including merch, stickers, bonus content from my interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, and soon, full bonus episodes. If you don't think you can become a monthly patron, you can still check out rossafari.redbubble.com for some merch from the show and the Insta account. Thanks for considering it. And if you really don't think that you can give any money to the podcast, do me a favor and try and share this with some of your friends and family, because that helps a lot too. Today's episode is going to be a little different than most of my zoo-based ones. Today, I'm taking you to the Penn Vet Working Dog Center in Philadelphia. The WDC does a bunch of interesting stuff, including preparing dogs for careers as police dogs, search and rescue dogs, scent detection dogs, and more. They are also currently doing a bunch of incredible studies into cancer detection, COVID detection, and the project that made me think the WDC was a perfect fit for this show, spotted lanternfly detection. For those that don't know, spotted lanternflies are an incredibly invasive species that are affecting a whole bunch of the eastern United States right now and are especially bad in my native Pennsylvania. Spotted lanternflies cause a lot of damage to trees and can literally destroy entire ecosystems, making them a major threat to the conservation of native species here. And you all know I love me a good conservation story. I spoke to two people at the center. First, you'll hear from Tessa Seals, the Foster Program Coordinator and Social Media Manager at the WDC. She'll talk all about their incredible foster program and how they train dogs to find their purpose and turn it into a career. You'll then hear from Dr. Jennifer Essler, a postdoc working in the research department, who will tell you all about the amazing research work being done at the Center, including the Spotted Lanternfly Project. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Tessa Seals from the PenVet Working Dog Center. Hey Tessa, it's good to see you again. Um, why don't you tell everyone who you are and uh, where you work and what you do there?
1: Um, so, hi, my name is Tessa Seals. I'm the foster program coordinator and social media manager over at the PenVet Working Dog Center. Um, and so, the Penn vet Working Dog Center is a nonprofit organization that trains dogs for working careers such as urban search and rescue, um, law enforcement, and then we also have a research side where we're currently doing um, research involving ovarian cancer detection, and the spotted lanternfly study is a big one we also have going on right now. The way that the program operates is our dogs basically get dropped off to school uh, Monday through Friday, and on weekdays like weeknights and on weekends they live with foster families um and so that's where i come in so i am in charge of recruiting training and kind of just keeping track of all the fosters making sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing um and you know just kind of supporting them any way that i can um in any way that the center can so you know fosters get these puppies at eight weeks old and they could have them anywhere from 12 to 18 months while the dog is training. And once the dog has a career path, then they might get sold or purchased to a department or an agency for a specific career. Um, And then at that point, the dog will transfer over from the foster to their new handler and their new life. Um, So throughout that 12 to 18 months, you start out with this puppy and as they get older, they get harder to train, harder to manage, um, you know, living environment, um, you know, there could be social and environmental factors that can kind of play a big role in how the dog develops. Um, and so it's important that we kind of are able to help control that and help make sure that the fosters are getting the support that they need.
0: All right. That's a really, really cool program. Um, before we get into some details about that, how did you get to be a part of this and get to your current position? What's your story?
1: So I um, went to Drexel for my undergrad um, degree. And when I was looking at my second co-op, I actually came across the Penvet Working Dog Center. Um, and I went there and I fell in love. Uh, It was just one of those things where you walk in and you kind of immediately felt like home and you kind of felt like this is where you belonged. Um, And so my entire kind of career path changed. Um,
0: What what had you studied?
1: I was an English major at the time. And then (laughs) when I switched to when I went to the Working Dog Center, I became a political science major. Um, and, uh, I did one co-op and then when my co-op ended, I continued to go back and train and work with the dogs as a volunteer. And then I actually did a second co-op. Um, that was my last co-op out of three. And for that co-op, I focused more with the law enforcement program and the law enforcement dogs. So the dogs that I had been working with were some of the really more difficult dogs, um, and those are the dogs that I really felt a kind of a bond and a connection with, right? So the dogs that not everybody can handle, but that takes time and effort to kind of build that bond and build that trust. Um, and that's, that's really what I love. Um, and so I focused with the law enforcement program. Um, and then when I graduated Drexel, I uh, wanted to go to Penn for my master's degree in criminology. And at the same time, the foster program coordinator position opened up for full time. And so I applied, hoping that I would get the position and that I could go to Penn and it would all be a-okay. And it actually ended up working out that way. So um, right now I'm still trying to figure out what exactly I want to be doing. But I love, love, love working with the dogs and love the law enforcement aspects. So I'm hoping that eventually I'll be able to work my way into a career path along those lines.
0: All right. Very, very cool. So when you use the term working dog, what exactly are we talking about?
1: So a working dog is one that um, basically they're they're here to provide a service, but the the work that they're doing is more than just for one single person. So when you think like a service dog, you know, you have they're usually assigned to an individual, right? So it could be a seeing eye dog. It could be a therapy dog. Um, And for us, our working dogs, they are high drive, high intensity, um, super toy driven, super motivated. And what they do is they are providing a service, but to a community. So for our search and rescue dogs, you know, they go out if there's um, an earthquake or some sort of natural disaster and they're out there, they're searching for whether people are alive or they're searching for victims of this disaster. Um, with our law enforcement, you know, they're they're out there serving a general community to keep it safe. Um, so drug dogs, bomb dogs, the apprehension dogs. Um, so that's kind of the difference between like a service dog and a working dog. Um, and so for our program, you'll never see us – bring in a dog that is um, really from like the same lines as a service dog. So genetically, we look for those high drive, high motivated dogs because we want them to want to work. Um, We shouldn't have to kind of force it out of them. They inherently like that's what their genetics are.
0: Absolutely. That's awesome. And um, as you know, uh, Zoe and I fostered Anna for a year, and she might have been the most high drive dog that I have, have ever seen. You may have experience with others. <laughs> but um, there were many nights where I was uh, a lot of, you know, getting gigs and stuff is making phone calls. And I'd be out playing fetch with her and making these phone calls and trying to work out all of my details for upcoming shows and stuff. And we would play fetch for over two hours. <laughs> and she just wanted to keep going. There were days I'd wake up the next morning and my shoulder was like aching. And I was just like, how is that possible? How did you do that? And she's like, let's go. Let's go again. Let's yep. go again. So yeah, no, um, high drive is is an experience. I think for, for dog owners who are listening, who, you know, have dogs that can be a, a little hyper or something, it's definitely next level when you're actually talking about genetically predisposed to yep. an insane drive. Um, speaking of which you are fostering a dog right now, uh, tell us a little bit about that dog.
1: Um, so I'm actually on my second foster dog. Um, so his name is Gunner and to give you a little background. So my first dog, his name was Skiff and he was a Belgian Malinois, Dutch shepherd mix. And so when you're kind of thinking about working dogs on the scale of drive, um, you know, A Dutch Shepherd and a Belgian Malinois are kind of up near the top. And when you cross them, it's like triple the fun, right? They're just like (laughs) off the charts. um, And that's what my first dog was like, uh, Skiff. He was super high drive, crazy. Um, He was also really reactive. um, So especially with people, he didn't like strangers. He didn't like new people. So when I tried to walk him on the street – it was really a challenge. I would have to cross the street whenever somebody was coming, change direction, all this kind of stuff. It got to the point where I couldn't take him anywhere in public, um, and if I was in a tight situation, he had to wear a muzzle. Um, so he was he was a little bit of a challenge, but I love him. Um, I actually got to see him last night. He was Aww. yeah, I got in service training last night, and I pulled over so I could say hi to him. And uh, he, <laughs> I mean, he remembers me, and that's like the best feeling ever. Um, just to to see them again, um, and so now with Gunner, uh, Gunner is a Dutch Shepherd, and he is um, he actually comes from a line where they bred the the parents actually were the parents of two dogs I've trained in the past, so that was like kind of the big draw for me to to work <laughs> with Gunner, um, and he's phenomenal. He is super super friendly. He loves everyone. I don't think he's met someone he doesn't like. Uh, he loves dogs. He loves going places. He's a huge adventure dog. Um, so like I've taken him kayaking, hiking, we've gone paddle boarding. Um, he just does everything with me and he's so much fun. Um, and so he's going to be six months old next week and, uh, he's doing really well in his training and I'm, I kind of have the feeling I'm not going to have him for very long. Uh, Kind of when he turns a year, I think then he'll kind of be on his way out the door, which is why we do this, but it's still, you get so attached, it's hard. The foster program, it's expected for full-time fosters that they get the dog out and they're giving them new experiences and getting them socialized and environmentally sound. So when I interview people, I make sure that they're not kind of couch potatoes, right? That they're active, they're going to get out, they're going to do things with the dog because we want to make sure the dogs get exposed to Everything that they possibly can before they start a career, because you never know what they're going to face when they're actually out on the street working or doing whatever. Um, You know, we've had dogs. We had one dog this past week. He was on vacation at the lake, so he was posting photos of him swimming.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I know we've, we've taken three different dogs now to zoos. Um, and I have, I have amazing pictures of, of some of the dogs from the center with, uh, you know, face to face, obviously through the glass with, with cheetahs and bobcats and it's just, it's really cool. Um, yeah. So for people who are listening, working dogs are treated like service dogs in the sense that, uh, they have a vest and you can take them, you know, pretty much anywhere. I mean, there are there are some restrictions, but and um yeah, so you can if you are fostering a dog, you can and should take it on your target run, take it on a grocery run, take it to the zoo, um let it listen to your favorite podcast or safari, whatever. Um but yeah, just uh it's really cool to have that kind of access and it's it's actually really good for the dog and it really serves an important pers- uh, purpose to the overall community, which is really cool. Um there was something you mentioned uh, about skiff that I kind of I want to bring up um the word muzzle seems to be almost a bad word with a lot of people for dogs and and I personally think that should be fixed I I think muzzles are a good thing in, in some cases. And um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that or what, what it's like for a dog to be muzzled and, and is the dog okay? Are muzzles okay? Um, you obviously spend your life with these these animals. So, so just share some thoughts.
1: Yeah. So I think that muzzle training is one of the most important things that any um, person can do with their dog. Um, and it's not only for the safety of a person or people if your dog is reactive, but it's also for the safety of the dog too. So with Skiff, he was muzzle trained pro- from the time he was about four months old. I had to muzzle train him. I had no option. Um, and even with Gunner, now I've uh, he is muzzle trained as well. And that's just something that, you know, I want to make sure that when he gets handed off to a handler, if they have to take him to the vet, if he gets injured and he... Um, on the, well, if he gets injured on the job and they have to put the muzzle on him to transport him to the hospital or whatever the situation is, that he's not going to put up a fight. Um, so that's, that's why the muzzle is super important. Um, and so all of our dogs are t- muzzle trained um, so that when they leave, you know, the handler knows. Everything is done with positive reinforcement. So with both my dogs, they get treats for putting the muzzle on their face and they get treats for walking around in it. And we go on the street and we'll do basic obedience and all this other stuff just to make them comfortable. Um, And you're right. A lot of people view the muzzle as a dangerous or view it as, wow, that dog is super dangerous. I should stay away. And that's not always the case, right? So some dogs are reactive because, yes, they are aggressive and they will want to hurt you. Um, so that's how Skiff was. Um, I had no doubt that if someone tried to walk up to me, he would bite them. Uh, but there are also dogs where their, their reactivity is fear, um, or it's anxiety based. And so they may bite somebody, but it may not be because they want to hurt them. It could be because I'm afraid of you and I don't know what you're going to do to me. And so in that situation, putting the muzzle on is still the best option for safety for everybody, right? Make everybody feel safe. Um, we've had dogs where they are not comfortable with other dogs or we're not sure how they would react to another dog. If we want to introduce them, we put the muzzle on them. Nobody gets hurt. Um, and once they get comfortable, then you can phase the muzzle out. Same thing with meeting new people, right? If you're not sure if your dog is going to be comfortable meeting, especially maybe with children, Um, or, you know, older people, you may put the muzzle on them, see how they do. And then eventually you can phase it out. Um, and so that's how with Skiff, when I handed him over, I told the handler, Hey, when you take him in your house and you have him around your daughter and your wife, put the muzzle on until you start to get comfortable. He's had Skiff for about four months now, and he is able to have Skiff running through the house around his five-year-old daughter and his wife with no muzzle. So he was able to phase it out, which is phenomenal. Um, you know, it you know it just takes time, but the muzzle doesn't have to be a lifelong thing, right? Like you can use it, and it's always going to be there. It's always going to be able to benefit you and benefit your dog. Um, and living that life where if I had to take my dog somewhere and he had to wear a muzzle, people look at you, and they they certainly do. Like the the muzzle Skiff had, he looked like Hannibal Lecter. It was. <laughs> It was bad. He looked like Like, he literally, like, and he had a collar on that said do not pet him because I just didn't want anybody to even come near him for the off chance that something could happen, right? Um, But that was, like, extreme. But he was also in training to be a police dog, so it's a little different than just, like, a regular pet dog that may – have some social anxiety or social fear or something like that.
0: Sure, but I, I think yeah, I think it's important to destigmatize the muzzle because it's it's a good training tool. Dogs are are generally okay with it. I mean, they want their treats. They you know positive reinforcement training is a beautiful thing. Um, so cool. Thank you for for sharing about that. Um, speaking of training, what kind of training do you guys do at the center and how does it work?
1: So all of our dogs are, they all kind of get the same basic foundational training. So they will all learn how to hunt for odor. Um, And that's like, so an odor, if you think about like a drug dog, they're searching for drugs. So we teach our dogs to search for odor that way. They also learn how to find um, the missing person. So if you think of a search and rescue dog, if someone's trapped under the rubble pile and you send your dog out, that they should be able to find that person and alert on that person being there. The dogs also get obedience, agility, engagement, socialization, um, and environmental training. So they go on field trips, um, where they're working in different environments. So it's important to expose them because they're not always going to be working at the working dog center in our agility yard or on our rubble pile. Um, they'll be working in real life environments. So that's important. So that's, those are the foundational aspects of our training. Um, And as the dogs grow in the program and they start to kind of show us where their strengths and their weaknesses are, we're able to kind of say, okay, we think this dog is more suited for uh, Rubble to be a search and rescue dog, or we think this dog is more suited to be a single purpose dog.
0: Hey y'all, interrupting John here. Tessa just used the term single purpose dog. Single-purpose just means that the dog has been trained to detect one single odor or group of odors, like explosives or drugs. In the law enforcement canine community, this is in contrast with dual-purpose dogs, which are trained in apprehension, also known as bite dogs, which can be used to take down a suspect, as well as odor detection. Okay, back to the interview.
1: Um, we don't ever force the dog in any into any one career, so... Um, you know, if a dog shows strength as a rubble dog, but they also show strength as a single purpose dog, depending on what the need is and who comes in and they're like, Hey, I really like that dog. I want him for a rubble or I want him for a bomb dog. Then that's a discussion that they would have and say, okay, like, do we really want this dog to go one way or like, which, which way is this dog really going to excel? Um, and so that's something that they would, uh, consider as well
0: very cool and um what is uh what is your success rate and and what happens if a dog maybe isn't um quite up to the task
1: so we have about a 93% success rate and which is incredible by the way yeah yeah it's uh, that's because we don't force the dog into any one career right so you know we kind of utilize their strengths and if they show us hey we don't like climbing a metal ladder They're not going to be a rubble dog, right? We'll put them more towards um, the single purpose work. And so for the dogs that don't excel in the program, um, whether they've exhausted all of our career options, um, they may eventually end up as a research dog. Um, So they'll participate in any ongoing research studies we have going on at the center and they'll live with their foster family. Um, We've also had a couple of dogs who just didn't fit the mold. So our most recent dog, he was a golden retriever. Uh, His name was Riley and he was the sweetest dog ever. Um, I mean, this dog, he would just sit there and let you pet and pet and pet him. Um, He would like put his paws on your forearms and he was super cute. And he didn't really have the drive to want to work, but he knew how to make people feel good. Um, and so what we ended up doing was we ended up allowing the fosters to purchase him as, um, but the goal that they will train him to be a therapy dog. Um, and so the fosters have already begun work on that and they've been keeping us updated with all his progress and, and all that stuff, um, which is phenomenal. Right. So, you know, even though he doesn't fit as a working dog, he still is going to be able to provide a service, um, which is, you know, their goal is to be able to take them to hospitals around children, you know, and that's in itself is, um, a huge positive. I mean, just to make people feel good. Um, so, you know, that's really where we felt that dog was, was put on this planet for.
0: <laughs> that's really awesome. I love that. You guys are basically high school guidance counselors for, uh, for puppies. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Very cool. So, um, you've mentioned a bunch of different names here. Uh, I know that you guys have a specific way that you name your dogs. So talk a little bit about that and kind of the history of the center, how that all ties together.
1: So um, the Penn Vet Working Dog Center was created by Dr. Otto. And so she was a veterinarian, or she is a veterinarian, um, and she was actually at 9 And when she saw kind of the physical fitness and how these dogs are working and their drive and all of this stuff, she had this amazing idea to create the Penvet Vet Working Dog Center. And um, so for us, the way that we name our dogs is they're named after victims, handlers, or canines who worked at 9-11. Um, and following 9-11, Dr. Otto also did a study, um, on the dogs that were at 9-11 and there's a, we had dogs that were sort of a control, um, that kind of worked along with that study. So dogs are also named from, from that control list as well. So that's how we honor, um, kind of, you know, every, anyone who was kind of at 9-11, um, so, yeah,
0: very, very cool. I love that. So tell me about uh, some in- interesting dog stories. I'm sure you have some funny or, or cute ones about, um, you know, either the ones that you fostered or just anyone at the center who um, I'm, I'm sure you've got plenty.
1: <laughs> My favorite one is actually um, the foster. She was fostering a dog named Deja Vu. Uh, I think you had Deja. Oh, uh, Dej,
0: oh, I know Deja. Yeah. This,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, and she told this story where she was out in the backyard and Dej was running around or whatever, playing ball. And she's sitting on her, her porch or whatever. And all of a sudden, Dej walks over and she drops something on the foster's lap. And she looks down and it's a dead bird. And Dej is just standing there and she is has this big smile on her face. Like, look, mom, look what I brought you. And the foster was, of course, mortified. Like, oh, my God, now I have this dead bird on my lap. But, you know, for me, it's that is important too, to kind of think of these dogs as they're just dogs, you know, (laughs) like they are honest to good dogs who love to play and fetch and snuggle and go on adventures. And they also love to work and they love their job. And so the big part of the foster program is teaching these dogs when it's time to be on and when it's time to be off, right? So at school, they're on, they are full in, in work mode and they want to work. They want to play. I drop Gunnar off. He knows we're at school. He drags me to get inside because he knows he's going to do fun things. And, you know, when I pick him up, he drags me to the car because he's like, I'm tired. I want to go home. So that's the real important uh, aspect, you know, of of the fostering. Um, other stories, I there's just so many. It's like... Uh, we had one dog. His name was Dylan. Love Dylan. Um, and he was a Dutch Shepherd. And we had we had a couple of dogs in heat. Um, so kind of you know when the female goes through their their heat cycle or whatever. And the dog that was in heat at the time was a dog that he played with regularly, and he loved. They got along very well. And um, when she was in heat, we had to have her on the other side of the building, and we had him in a separate room all by himself uh just to keep him away from her because he could smell and he was just like he would go crazy and it got to the point where we actually had to chain chain the kennel uh because he was getting out of the kennel and trying to get and trying to get out and get to her i swear to god like we had the kennel chained with like bike chains to keep him locked in there it was a whole thing but yeah that's one of the crazy things
0: Um, you know, speaking of the fosters, I have to take a minute to give you props. Um, a couple of times when I was at the center, um, fosters would come in and, and newer fosters who were getting used to their dogs and and tell you stories about choices that they had made and things that they were doing at home. And um, the foster program is a volunteer program. It is, it is not paid. And so because of that, even though you screen people, they're always going to be growing pains uh you know at times and um i have watched you deal so effectively with people and and i've heard a couple of times where people have said like oh i let a dog do this right and you just very calmly like your eyes get really big for half a second and then you go okay well (laughs) thank you for that um Maybe instead of giving them cereal boxes as toys, we could give them dog toys as toys. (laughs) Here, we have a collection of dog toys here. Why don't you take a couple of these home? And um, I've always been very impressed at your ability to uh, not smack people i guess (laughs) i i would ask for some funny foster stories but I, i feel like you wouldn't want to make anyone feel bad or embarrass them so i'm not going to do that but um just know that i appreciate the fact that you are able to be so uh patient with people thank you absolutely awesome well thank you for agreeing to do this i really appreciate it absolutely Okay, and here's Dr. Jennifer Essler to tell you a little bit about the research side of the PenVet Working Dog Center.
1: Okay, so
0: um, tell me who you are and what you do here at the center.
2: So I am Dr. Jennifer Esler. I am the postdoc at the PenVet Working Dog Center, working in the research department here.
0: Okay, and um, what is your doctorate in?
2: Actually, it's interesting. My doctorate is in comparative cognition. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna, in Austria. Um, and so they get a little more specific with their PhDs. I think the comparison in the US might be like a psychology, uh, animal behavior type degree. Uh, I, before I was here, I worked with uh, wolves. Oh, so,
0: wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. That's really funky. Very <laughs> yep. cool. And, um, and so you are a vet then?
2: I'm not a vet. Oh, okay. um, it's okay. just from, like, the behavior research side of, gotcha. of the, the place I was working at. Kind of like how we're part of the vet school, but most of the people actually at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center are not vets. Right.
0: Okay. Very cool. And so um, I talked to Tessa already, and so uh, the listeners know about a lot of the um, police dog side of things and all of that, but there's also a strong research component here. Mm -hmm. And that's what you run, correct? Correct. Cool. And the first thing that I want to talk about that, because I find all of this fascinating, but uh, this podcast is very focused on conservation. And um, you have uh, been working on a Spotted Lanternfly project. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the Spotted Lanternfly project was really cool. It was one of the actually few projects so far at the center that I've been able to be involved in from start to finish. Because the sender opened, obviously, well before I came here. Um, so the spotted lanternfly is an invasive plant hopper insect in the northeast. Um, I think it was found in Bucks County 2014-ish or so. Um, and, you know, if you live in the area, I think everyone knows at this point what a spotted lanternfly looks like. There's tons of posters up, kill them. Um, so basically the spotted lantern lanternflies um, kill trees in multiple ways. So they eat the sap. And then their excrement also produces or promotes molding of the trees. Um, So it's huge, not only hugely invasive, um, but a big problem um, for the agriculture industry. Um, And so we were actually interested in whether dogs can kind of play a part in the fight against this. Um, They're a really interesting insect for this because they have a one year life cycle. So, In the fall, they lay their eggs, and then all of the adults die. And then they come about, I think, you know, in the spring again. And so we kind of targeted that fall-winter time when the eggs are around uh, to see whether dogs would be able to be kind of deployed into areas that were perceived as infected um, so that we might extend the quarantine so that they might go in and actually deal with the eggs in that period. Um, Because obviously dealing with eggs... Much more efficient than trying to catch all these little insects. Um, And actually, the egg pods that they lay, like 50 to 80 insects in one little pod. Um, So you can be quite efficient aiming for the eggs rather than um, the insects. So that was kind of our goal was, you know, can the dogs even do this? Does it have a unique odor? Is it possible? Uh, Because no one had, had done this with this species
0: before. Cool. And how'd it go?
2: Um, It was really hard. Um, So, you know, the, the eggs are really small, there's not a ton of odor on them. Um, And our first goal was kind of to try and train them to focus on the eggs and not this background odor of tree bark, which sure. is obviously much stronger. Um, So, you know, our first, you know, our first time dealing with it was, you know, here's your target odor, please ignore these other odors that are much stronger. And it did take some of the dogs longer than we actually thought to ignore tree bark when we were actually rewarding them for like kind of a tree bark plus egg because the eggs were scraped from the tree bark if that makes sense yeah, totally yeah um but actually eventually they all became all three of them became really excellent so we had sensitivities and specificities above 90 percent um in the end and so you know now we're at the point where we're going to be training a dog to get deployed this fall, this winter, um, in that. So it it was really cool. Yeah. Super successful.
0: That's so awesome. I love that so much. What do you do in general as far as like how, um, for people that have never been here, yeah, Explain the process of scent training a dog and, like, what the wheel is. Sure. Because I know, yeah, but yeah. I, want, I want you to explain it because you're better at
2: it. Yeah, yeah. So, actually, this, the scent wheel, it's really funny because it's not a wheel anymore. It used to spin. So, <laughs> think of it as kind of just a, a carousel on, you know, it, it's, it's a circle. It has ports that kind of jut out on arms, and the dogs are trained to go around in that circle, sniff each port, and give some sort of behavior or indication When they get to the odor that we've trained them on. Um, So in this case, it was the eggs. Um, So we actually just started the dogs that we used kind of already into the game. So we trained the dogs to search for odor at the center generally. And this was basically for them just adding another odor onto it, if that makes sense. Um, So we basically just put it in front of them. They sniffed it. We used a clicker. We marked it and gave them a reward. And you just keep doing that until they realize, okay, this is. One of my odors, and then when it's in this wheel, this carousel, they they're working. They get to that odor and they alert. They 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 stare at it. They sit, whatever that dog's alert is. Um, and so that was the process. That's actually the process for all of our studies, but sure, it was sure. you know the the simple process that we used um um for that. And if Tessa talked about you know any of the odor detection that they do, it's it's basically the same process of just associating this game of finding odor with whatever the dog wants their reward to be, food, toy, play, that kind of stuff.
0: And you guys kind of figure that out. You let the dogs tell you what their best reward is and what their um, uh, what their tell is going to be.
2: Right? Yeah. So the alert is shaped. Um, so we use either a stare. So they get to the port. They stare. <laughs> they completely freeze and hold their nose on it. Um, I like our dogs have between four and seven seconds because I want it to be very, very clear that they're not just interested in it, but actually alerting. Um, we also use a sit. So they just sit at that, at that port. Um, and we kind of let the dogs choose. It depends a little bit on the behavior for some dogs. They need that, um, like, what do I do here? I sit. <laughs> Versus I just stop. They sometimes need that kind of um, extra behavior almost. Um, but we do kind of let them choose. The only thing we don't allow is um what's called an active alert. So barking or pawing. We don't want any of that. It has to be completely passive. Um, and then the reward, yeah. They just pick whatever they want. So I like food on the wheel. Most of our dogs use food on the wheel because we need a large number of repetitions usually back here. Um... And using play, the dogs get very tired. After
1: sure, after just a yeah. few,
2: yeah. So we try to use either really, really low energy play or food.
0: Cool, very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so when a dog um, gives that signal, yeah, that's like they know they're getting the reward. They feel good about it. It it gives them positive reinforcement. So uh, when when you have a dog that is working. And let's say they are a drug dog or a cancer dog, and they're not finding drugs or cancer. How do you keep them motivated?
2: Uh, That's actually a really good question. So back here in research, what we do is we train them how to do what we call a blank wheel. Um, So what you're alluding to is like, if they don't find it, are they upset? Do they start falsing and guessing because they really want a food reward? Right, right. And the answer is yes. So if they think the only way for them to get paid is is to hit on something and you never give them the opportunity to, they're just going to guess. And so what we do is we train them to perform a behavior if the odor isn't there. Um, so they go around the wheel, they sniff every port, and then there's a little platform that they can sit on. And we do the same. They sit on it, we click, we give them the reward. Um, and that's important for us because there are going to be times that there aren't odors in the field. Um And we don't want it to be a forced choice paradigm. Right. So we don't want them to always know that it's there because that kind of does give them, not just them, but our trainers, (laughs) the preconceived notion of, you know, almost where it is in a way. Like, you know, it's present, so it's not blind anymore. Right. Um, So we do, yeah, we train our dogs an alternative way to get reward that kind of keeps them from thinking that they need to start guessing to get a reward. Yeah.
0: That's cool. I know I, uh, the reason I thought of that question is I had read somewhere that um, in the field, drug dogs, sometimes their handlers will keep a small amount of like marijuana or something on them. Mm-hmm. And then if they're not getting anyone, they'll, they'll let them sniff it and let them earn their reward. Yeah. Is
2: that so I,
0: you know about? Or I
2: think you that you it's, it's a little more nuanced than that, but yeah. So putting, you know, putting targets out for dogs to hit within a real life scenario kind of turning it into training is is as far as i'm aware super common um you you need to be able to reward the dog um and especially when you're working with bombs or drugs like an airport or something like thankfully (laughs) they're not hitting that often right but you still need to keep that motivation up so i think it it, you know it is really common that that they plant something for the dogs to succeed on yeah very
0: cool and i know that um you know, I doubt that anyone who listens to my podcast is this way, but there are definitely people who think that any kind of use of an animal is torture and wrong. And yeah. And that. But, and, and I can speak from experience here, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Um, the dogs generally love their work, right? Like I know when we took care of Anna,
2: yeah. she loved,
0: I mean, she loved everything. That, that girl loves life. Right. But like they're happy dogs and you, you take that into consideration and you, you care about them, right? What steps do you take to make sure that, um, This isn't exploitation of animals. This is making animals.
2: Right. So, you know, so in a way, they're kind of genetically predisposed to wanting to work because we do get dogs from working lines. So we're kind of putting the chips in our favor that the dogs are going to want to work. The center in general, and this is a bit more on the training side, though I am involved in sort of the research of this, um, because, you know, like Tessa kind of talked about, we have all these different careers, um, unlike a lot of other places, we actually are able to kind of let the dogs choose what they're good at or what they like. Um, and so this leads to two good things. We don't have a really high washout rate. So most of our dogs are successful, I think 94% or something. Um, but on the flip side, you know, if you have a dog that's too nervous to be a police dog or too anxious to go out and work, we do have other opportunities for them to make sure that they enjoy the career they're in, that they're going to be successful and happy. Um, and, you know, of course I can't, you know, express it over a podcast, but, you know, I'm, when I get a dog from the kennel to work, they drag me to the door to come back here. You know, like you, you know that they, you're not dragging them to work. <laughs> um, and I can only say, you know, my experience with, you know, retiring dogs from here. So since I've been here, we have retired a few of our cancer detection dogs, um, And though they did like coming to the center, you know, they get back here and they're kind of like, "Eh, I don't, you know, one of our dogs foster at some point I was cooking steak for her at home to keep her motivation high enough (laughs) to finish a study because I could see that she was, I think she was seven. She was kind of getting that age, like, nah, I really want to retire, but, you know you do have to like balance it with like, this is, I only have five dogs. I can't right. just retire them all the time. So, you know, I was cooking steak and cheese and all this <laughs> stuff for her, you know, to keep her motivated and interesting. Cause it is, you know, the happy dogs are the ones that are good at their job. You know, if they didn't like it, they wouldn't be good. Um, and so we do retire them when they hit that point of, they, they tell you when they're done. Right. That makes um, sense. either, you know, either they age or behaviorally. Um, it's super important to us that we place dogs in, in careers that they're happy with. And, you know, we have washed dogs that didn't want to work. Right. It's not common. Again, that genetic thing, we, we try and get around that, but it, it has happened. Um, and we, we always, you know, do our very best to stay true to the dog in front of us.
0: Yeah. That's very cool. And, uh, so you mentioned cancer dogs, and I think Mm -hmm. that's when most people think of research dogs, that's what people think of. Yeah. So tell me about your cancer dogs and your study and, um, what exactly they can do.
2: Yeah. So we're kind of, um, you know, the one question we always get is, you know, are we going to have dog sniffing people for cancer? And that's absolutely not what we're going to do. There are places that, you know, do stuff like that. So the main goal of our collaboration with the cancer detection project is actually to make an electronic nose to kind of mimic what the dogs do to basically be a blood test. Um, So we work with ovarian cancer now, though there's always plans to expand it, you know, to do the most good that we can. Um, And, you know, we have dogs that are trained to find cancer, ignore benign and controls. Um, And this is something that dogs have been doing for a decade or so in research. Um, What's really interesting with our work, I think is our collaboration. So we work with some analytical chemists at Monell um, as well as some physicists at Penn. So the Charlie Johnson lab Um, basically kind of, a little triangle of trying to make this electronic nose so the physicists make the electronic part the chemists try and work and pull apart these volatile organic compounds um of basically the odor that's coming off of cancer and the best way that i can explain it to people that are listening to art chemists are when you're baking cookies, you say, I can smell cookies, but actually you're smelling the VOCs coming off the cookies. Okay. And so the dogs are smelling the VOCs coming off the, the cancer plasma, even though we can't smell it, they can. And the chemists can kind of pull these apart, and we're trying to figure out what set of VOCs the dogs are using to distinguish cancer from not cancer to better optimize the electronic nose.
0: That's really cool.
2: Yeah. Did I That's, did I explain oh, that so in an
0: appropriate... Well. Oh, no, okay. so well. That, yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> I remember, and I, so I knew nothing about that when I first, like, at the start of this interview. I sure. know that cancer dogs exist, kind of. Yeah. But I, I literally remember the first time I walked into this center, and this is so embarrassing. Okay, this, <laughs> I remember thinking, like, oh my gosh, what if a dog, like, sniffs my crotch and then like does a behavior does (laughs) does that mean that I have cancer I am genuinely like is that is that gonna be a thing and I know that's kind of silly but also like you
2: would be surprised, actually, a lot of people have that perception. Yeah. Um, so the only cancer dogs that I know of, and I could be totally wrong because it's not really the field that I'm in specifically, there is a group in the UK that does, um, I believe, prostate cancer with urine, but it's still urine. It's not. Right. It's walking up to people, you know, and, and that's kind of part of it too, right? You don't want a dog to be giving you your diagnosis. so there, <laughs> You know, there might be... As cool as it might be to have dogs, you know, giving your diagnosis, there is a not insignificant subset of people that don't want dogs to be doing that. And so, you know, I think this electronic nose thing, this blood test, this is a good intermediary. Yeah, yeah. Seems like
0: it could, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Dr. Dog might exactly. be a good television show someday. Yes. But, uh, yeah. You probably
2: don't want one walking into no. your, you know, your room and, and giving you that. That was
0: literally I was like, how do you just stop a dog from like sniffing a button, and being like, Oh dude, you have cancer. Yeah, so exactly. That makes
2: sense. <laughs> so we're avoiding all that we're gonna put it in a blood test good
0: good that makes sense um very cool so tell me about some of the other projects that you have going on here
2: well you know the the big project outside of the specifically olfaction research that we're interested in and kind of the big rainbow like pot of gold at the end of the rainbow sort of thing that the center is aiming to do is you know how do you Build a better detection dog, and how do you pick better detection dogs? So like I said earlier, one of the really great things about our center is we have lots of end careers for these dogs, so we don't have to wash them. But this is not true for the vast majority of places training working dogs. So if you're only training USAR dogs...
0: And once more, it's time for Interrupting John. USAR stands for Urban Search and Rescue. These are dogs that are trained to find people at disaster sites. For example, the dogs used at Ground Zero on 9-11 and over the next few days of searching the area for humans were USAR dogs. Okay, back to Jenny.
2: You're only training police dogs, your washout rate is going to be much higher because these are higher and different bars to set, you know, for each career for each dog. And so, you know, the nice part about our center is we wash a dog from USAR, we put them into single purpose, which Tessa probably talked about either, you know, drugs or explosives or whatever technically those are washouts. Those are failures of other careers. And right. so we get that negative data because that's what you need to compare. If you only have the good data, you can't pick the bad dogs, right? Sure. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a big part of the center is the fact that we are able to keep these dogs past when other places might've washed them to see, you know, would it have been right to wash them? Cause sometimes, you know, you know, Anna, like she had a huge turnaround, and yes. she ended up being an excellent dog. But at the beginning, she was, you know, it was tough for her. Yeah, no, um, she
0: was a struggle You
2: know, dog. she wouldn't have been a puppy that probably someone would have always picked. She wasn't, like, a super strong, you know, but in the end,
0: she was. In the end. I mean, actually, she she accelerated so quickly. Yes. She went faster than most. Yes. Broke Zoe and my hearts a little bit. But we're also <laughs> yes. very proud of her. Yes. But, yeah, no, it's, it's very cool that you guys are able to provide that. Yeah.
2: Spectrum. You know, and so part of it is, you know, how much effort did we put into a dog like that, you know, Could we train five dogs while we trained a dog that was more difficult? You know, what is the, you know, it it comes down to money and time, you know, the sunk costs of these dogs that do or don't succeed. And so what's, you know, what's the kind of the perfect balance? And so, you know, part of what I'm involved in is taking behavioral data on the dogs from four weeks if there are litter, eight weeks if they're donated until they leave. So heights, reactivity to sounds, people, dogs, um, you know, what's their... I don't want to say this word for all if there's any dog trainers listening, but toy drive, you know, are they interested in, in searching? Are they interested in playing? And so all of these things that kind of come into being the perfect working dog, you know, if a dog doesn't have it by six months, will they never have it? Nine months, two months, you know, those kinds of things. And so that's kind of the, the, the big goal of, you know, probably everyone in the working dog world, including us, um, which is really cool. It's a whole side of the center that I, I don't actually get to talk about that much because it's not necessarily as super flashy as, you know, right, the cancer right. detection and stuff, but it's really important, um, because we do have a shortage of working dogs in the U S. Um, and so anything that we can give to make better or more working dogs is super beneficial for the country.
0: So how collaborative are y'all? Cause I know I normally deal with uh, zoo people on this podcast mm-hmm. and zoos are like, uber collaborative yeah do you guys work with other working dog um oh yeah, and you guys share your data and everything
2: yep cool. yeah i mean i'm talking on this podcast i think that's kind of an indication of how open we are you know with things we have tours people come all the time um yeah dr Otto is super collaborative actually her kind of goal is to make a, a big working dog collaboration and um if you can imagine, and I'm sorry if Doctor Otto listens to this, and I don't explain it properly, um, kind of having lots of working dog centers everywhere, mm-hmm. where you know maybe this one focuses on search and rescue dogs, and this one focuses on police dogs, and if this one has one that's not good, maybe they move them around, and, and you know kind of like a big collaboration with everyone, because um, like in many fields, it's not always easy to get everyone to collaborate because there are competing interests, right. there is money involved, and time, and and you know, politics and government. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not saying anything super controversial here. Um, but you know, a big push from Dr. Otto has been to get all of the stakeholders in this sitting at the table and talking about it because, you know, the working dog shortage in the U S is not going to get solved by us. It's going to get solved by everyone, you know, and so hugely collaborative. I can't, I, you know, I can't say enough about how, how much we work with, like every project that we have spotted lantern fly was with the department of agriculture. You know, the cancer project, we are working with four different labs, I think. Um, yeah, everything huge.
0: Very cool. I love that so much. That's so important. Uh, are there any other projects that you wanted to, uh, bring to light here?
2: I think the coolest one that we have coming up, we have a chronic wasting disease, um, project coming up. Um, And that one's really interesting, not only because of the impact. So if people don't know much about chronic wasting disease, I've actually only started learning about it because of the project. Um, It is found in in deers and deer family. It's, I think, a prion um, contagious. Um, One of those things where I believe that the way that you test for it is the animal has to be culled. And so a lot of the ways that they've been managing the spread of it is culling populations. Um, And so we were approached to see if dogs can be used to try and avoid culling whole populations, so we're actually going to be using the dogs to see if they can detect it in feces, so non-invasive. Um, and the really cool part about it is we're using two, three citizen science dogs, so three dogs that went through the training that maybe Tessa spoke about. I'm not sure if she talked about think her we citizen science. About that. Yeah, no. so we have a citizen science program here where if your dog has done nose work um, through any of the avenues privately that people do with their pet dogs, they can come and work with actually Tessa and Dr. Ramos um, and be trained to do the searching on the wheel and the, the, the research searching that we do. That, um, and then once they get to a certain level, they can qualify to be involved in one of our studies. And so it's actually, you know, the first time I'm working with citizen science dogs. So it's really exciting because I think it's, you know, community outreach, it's huge um and everyone loves their dogs so it's not hard to get people to you know come and let us see and work with their dogs and so half of the dogs in that study um are citizen science dogs and um you know just the impact of what the research could be plus working with citizen science dogs is you know really cool and kind of expanding the number of subjects I get to have in my studies without putting a bigger burden on the center, keeping lots of dogs here all the time. Um, so it's a new avenue for me that I'm really excited about.
0: Nice. Very, very cool. You guys are doing a cultural artifact study as well. Yeah. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. So that one's really interesting. So I think, you know, it wouldn't come to a surprise, come as a surprise to anyone that, you know, the, the fighting and, and civil wars and unrest in the middle East and really kind of across the globe, um, a lot of cultural heritage sites and items are getting looted and lost and destroyed and smuggled and sold. Um, And so we were approached by red arch cultural heritage policy and law, I believe we call it red arch for short, Um, to see whether potentially dogs might be used in kind of the fight against this artifact smuggling. So, you know, not only to stay true to, you know, trying to keep these artifacts in the countries they belong and not in the hands of, you know, the black market, but also there is some evidence that when these get sold, the funds get moved for um, uh, terrorism. So kind of a a two-prong attack, Um, you know, for anyone that knows how how you decide if it's an artifact versus a fake, quite invasive, time-consuming, expensive, very difficult. Um, So we thought... Maybe there's an odor difference. Maybe there's something the dogs can smell that's different in pottery from 2000 B.C. versus 2020 and coming into the country. And so, you know, we worked, um, you know, for the first part of the project, we got sherds, which I didn't even know this word, shard of glass, okay. shard of pottery. Okay, so pieces of cool. pottery from um, actually the museum at the University of Pennsylvania, Penn Museum, donated to us these sherds um, from a dig site in Syria. Um I wanna say it was from the nineties. The sherds were from I think one to two thousand BC. So certainly the oldest thing I've ever worked with. <laughs> um little tiny pieces of pottery. Um and if you need a picture I can give that would you. Be great, yeah. Um and basically we didn't know. We don't know we're kind of if they could even smell anything different from normal pottery. And so, you know, we did the same like we do with everything else. You associate the odor with the reward and get that alert. And then we kind of threw a bunch of controls at them. So does this smell like pottery from home Depot? Does this smell like money from Syria? Does this smell like, uh, you know, modern pottery from Syria, just tons of different things. And, and the training was over many months to get them to really hone in on, I think in the end we had 60 or 70 pieces to make sure that they were generalizing, not just this piece of pottery, but all pieces of pottery. Um, and that's kind of where we left it. So they were very successful. Um, in the end, the next step was to get pieces of pottery from other museums to make sure they weren't just hitting on anything from the Penn Museum. Right, right. Um, and then, sadly, COVID was sprung upon us. Yeah, and so, you know, the next step for that project is still, you know, is it, you know, verify that it's the sherd odor and not just the Pen Museum odor, um, and then see if we can use it in a a more lifelike scenario. So in the wheel is great, but you're going to be in an airport. You're going to be in a cargo hold. You're going to be at a FedEx, you know, those kinds of places. And so once we can verify that they are generalizing the right odor, we want, you know, see how applicable it is to, to real life scenarios. And that, that's still a plan. It's just, um, on hold.
0: (laughs) That's so cool though. And, you know, speaking of COVID, um, is there any way to use dogs for COVID sniffing or have we thought about that? Or, I mean, I'm sure you've thought about it. I'm not smarter than you here, but, um, you know, is there anything that's being worked on for that or anything thought about
2: that? So we are doing a COVID detection study. We have been for a couple of months now. Um, I honestly don't know exactly what I can say about it. I'm writing up the first paper now, yeah, so sure. it's, you know, it's getting there. Um, There have been other papers that were published. I'm not saying anything new that the idea out there seems to be that, yes, they can. The actual implementation, so can they do it in an airport line? Can they do it when walking into a building? I think that's yet to be determined. But it does seem like various fluids from the body do have some odor that the dogs can detect. And and that's great because... (laughs) We're kind of falling short on the testing
0: yeah, slightly, <laughs> side here. Yeah, slightly, a little bit, a little
2: bit. Yeah. Um, so that's good for that. And in terms of actual deployment, I think that's the next step for everyone. Is you know, I don't think it comes as a as a surprise that they can do it. You know, if they have dogs can smell cancer, malaria. I could go on forever. Um, it's more of how do you uh, apply it in a in a way that's effective and not a waste of time because. The dogs are expensive, time-consuming. You have to house them. They only live so long. They can only work for so many hours a day. So I think the next step is, you know, what's the most effective way to use them? Obviously, again, like the cancer scenario, you don't want a dog to give you your COVID results. Um, So probably not going to be working in a hospital. Um, But I think most people are thinking about those scenarios where you need to check a number of people very quickly without, uh, you know, here's your COVID result more of like when you're going to the airport maybe and you walk down the line and there's the, the bomb dog sniffing your stuff, maybe something like that.
0: Right. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So I always ask for what I call a poop story.
2: I'm very lucky in that most of the poop stories or gross stories, like, yeah, we deal with puppies. Like, I think the last litter that we had, Sarah, my research assistant and I, and honestly, mostly Sarah, I can't really even take most of the credit for this. We're going, you know, two, three times a day to clean up after puppies. And puppies are cute, but those pictures that you look up on Google are not what puppies are. Puppies are poop and chewing things and they're horrible and they're gross and smelly. And like, you know, would they hand you your eight week puppy, you know, here's your anna, that is not indicative of the anna that the breeders had to deal with. So you know that's probably like the the one thing that you know. Even people here that get their dogs from breeders or or anywhere eight weeks, it's so gross. Before that, you think it's gross at eight weeks, like it's you don't even know. And the other like kind of weird thing, so for the spotted lanternfly project, at some point when we started it, um, I'm not really a bug person. Right. I'm not like an anti bug person, but I'm not like walk on my arm, please. You know, like Zoe, she's very like, here's my cockroach. That's not me. Um, (laughs) and so when we started this project, the spotted lanternflies weren't here. So we were getting them imported (laughs) uh, nicely in little things. And then they got here and suddenly I'm out catching spotted lanternflies (laughs) and scraping little mud eggs and, um, you know, I know it's probably not as gross or weird as some of the vet stuff, but considering my job has been largely research and not, I don't, I never really worked in the field per se. Um, you know, that was new for me. There was definitely a time I was out trying to catch these stupid bugs thinking like, what is my job anymore? Like, this is so (laughs) weird. I'm out here trying to catch these bugs to present to the dogs and, um, you know, not in a negative way, but in a like, you know, I really care about this project way. And so, You know. I mean that's a great example because even though
0: it's not as gross, you're right, but it it shows like this is a thing you do not want to be doing. No. But for this project, your butt is out there doing it. Yeah. Exactly. So very
2: cool.
0: Yeah. cool. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no
2: problem. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Awesome stuff. I love everything that the people at the Working Dog Center are doing. It is just so cool what these dogs are able to do. I also love how we can look at some of the behavioral stuff that we've talked about with zoo animals and see that it applies to domestics as well. You can check out the Penn Vet Working Dog Center on Instagram at pen underscore vet underscore working underscore dog underscore center, and also search for them on Facebook and especially on YouTube, where they post a ton of videos showing how all of their dogs are learning to get into their careers. Also, don't forget to check me out at Rossifari on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, we'll be back in a zoo in just two days. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Rossafari. on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rasafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.